Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, my name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner who heads up the abuse team at Hugh James, and I'm joined today by my colleagues Danielle Vincent, Kathleen Hallisey, and Hannah Hodson. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Danny. Hi, Hi Alan. Hi, my listeners. Thank you for joining us. In this week's podcast, we're going to be talking about the recently published report into the Rochdale abuse scandal. But before we get underway, I need to remind you that obviously in this podcast, as in all our podcasts, we are talking about very sensitive matters. Quite understandably, they can be troubling. And so if you think you're going to be upset or troubled in any way, now's the time to switch off. Otherwise, please do stay with us. So by way of intro, early this month, that's January, of course, A damning report was published, which found that 48 girls were seriously found by Greater Manchester Police and Rochdale Council in being protected from sexual exploitation between 2004 and 2012. So that is the subject that we're going to be discussing. And by a little bit, a little bit way of um, some further information as regards what has been found, basically. 48 girls in Rochdale were seriously failed, according to the report, by Rochdale Council and Greater Manchester Police in being protected from sexual exploitation. This was an independent review, and it found that there was many as 260 potential victims overall. In many ways, this isn't new news because these abuse scandals have been popping up, for want of a better term, over recent years. We've had not only Rochdale, Rotherham, other towns as well, where social services and the police failed to protect very vulnerable young people and they ended up being sexually abused and generally exploited. A lot of rather difficult and perhaps taboo subjects have arisen out of these various inquiries into Rotherham and Rochdale and so on. And we also had ICSA, the Independent Inquiry into Sexual Abuse, which revealed that certain communities seem to come to the fore. There was issues around victim blaming, a lack of political leadership, and generally an abject um, failing on the part of the authorities that were charged with protecting children and young people. So much of this is not new. The point was sort of made, well, we've moved on. We may have in time, but I think it was generally accepted or certainly said in some quarters, but we haven't moved on because these problems are still with us. So that is a bit of a long introduction. So I'm now going to get my colleagues to join in the conversation that we are now planning to have in respect of all of this. So let's start off with victim blaming. Why do we have victim blaming when children and young people get sexually abused? 
Well, I think in regards to the, this specific instance you're talking about, and it's important to say to our listeners, we've even had dramas on this. I think BBC did Three Girls, which depicted the girls as almost, you know, going to their abusers and getting money and getting takeaways and getting driven around in the cars. And the way that it was portrayed, it was that it was almost consensual in some ways but you know we're talking about very young children here either under teenage or early teenage years and a lot of them have come from very really vulnerable backgrounds so I think we have to very much have at the forefront of our minds that these are children here. Um, Yeah exactly but why would police officers social workers blame the victims for what has happened to them and to pick up a phrase that I have seen used elsewhere the youngsters making a lifestyle choice, quote unquote, when they decide to, as the, you know, the victim blamers put it, allow themselves to be exploited. I mean, I think that's a misunderstanding on the part of the statutory authorities of what at that time and perhaps there that misunderstanding still exists of what child sexual exploitation is and what it looks like. You know, I think it can be convenient to blame victims to be frank, because I think sometimes these crimes are really complex and understanding the nature of the abuse, how it happens, how the exploitation happens, that these are not choices that they're capable of making at 12 and 13 years old. And I think some of what happened in relation to the victim blaming, as we know, is that there was no drilling down into what was actually going on here. These girls were being drugged. They were being plied with alcohol. They were being threatened themselves. They were Their families were being threatened. So it wasn't a choice mm. <laughs> as such. You know, they really had no choice in the matter. You know, I'd like to think that the understanding of police and other statutory authorities is, you know, progressed quite a lot from what, you know, happened in these cases. But I think that there is definitely still pockets within statutory authorities and police where victims are blamed or there's confusion over what consent actually looks like, particularly in relationships that are controlling and coercive. I had a a case from that part of the world where the victim, because her home life was so awful, she was vulnerable to being exploited. And she moved in with her abuser, who was a taxi driver, because he was providing food, shelter, all the things that she should have been getting in her own home. Obviously, he was grooming her and she didn't appreciate that. But from her perspective as a teenager, here was a man who, on the face of it, cared for her, was giving her what she was missing out on at home. And so she naturally put two and two together and moved in and of course Mm -hmm. having moved in he then exploited her in the worst possible way so i suppose through i don't know what's the word ignorance i suppose on the part of those in authority they saw that as a choice that she'd made she'd made that decision to move in with her abuser Mm -hmm. so erroneously and through ignorance i would say that's how they arrived at the decision she'd made a choice I think it's interesting because I think generally the public understands that in situations of domestic abuse and domestic violence, often the victims go back to the perpetrator. I think people generally know that and understand that. And it really isn't dissimilar in cases of child sexual abuse and child sexual exploitation. But Mm. for some reason, 
that kind of understanding and knowledge has not kind of filtered down for us all to kind of get that and and see that it, it really isn't any different. You know, I think sometimes people see, oh, well, they got money or they got, you know, I don't know, a taxi ride or they got food and they come from a deprived background. So clearly they knew what they were doing. And they made, as you say, Ellen, you know, people saying that they made a lifestyle choice without really understanding this is really a victim going back to their abuser because they have no place else to go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you're right, Kathleen, as well, in saying that, that some people, you know, they were threatened that their families would be harmed and things like that, and that their families were living in housing association houses. So it wasn't that, you know, like they could just end their rental agreement or, you know, sell up and move somewhere else. That they were going to also be reliant on authorities to move them out and then try to explain to your family why, you know, you've got to go. They were absolutely trapped. Like you, Alan, I had a client who was actually placed in a children's home and was repeatedly abused by men that would sit in cars outside this girl's only children's home because they knew that the girls were vulnerable and they would be outside with alcohol, cigarettes, drugs. And so when my client reported that she was raped three separate occasions, both the police and her social workers did nothing because, again, they said it was her lifestyle choice. You know, and it was only when she came to us in her 30s and, and we brought a claim against the local authority, it really showed how much she'd been impacted by that exact, you know, terminology that, you know, it was her choice effectively victim blaming, which I think impacted her almost as much as the abuse she suffered at the time. I think what we have to remember as well is we're talking about children who are so young, you know, some as young as 12 children are children at the end of the day and especially when they've come from such deprived background maybe not had much love or care in their life they actually don't know the difference between what is right and what is wrong and I think as Alan said when they're getting provided for I think sometimes it literally just does come down to that they don't actually know what's right and what's wrong and for many of them they don't realize it until much later that you know they were being groomed they honestly just could not see it at that time so it's definitely not you know a choice We've also seen with younger females, and and we see this across the board when, you know, we look at teacher abuse or doctor abuse or whatever we look at, is especially if you're a young female and you've got an older male, generally they home in on making you feel special. So as you're saying, Hannah, it's only years later, you know, when they're probably reaching adulthood that they think, wow, you know, well, they're Mm -hmm. having children of their own, how inappropriate that was of a man that was that much older. You know, but at the time they just think that they're, you know, standing out as special and they've been seen, something's been seen in them that's never been seen before. Yeah, I was just working on a case today where she was raped in every possible way, without being too descriptive for our listeners, from the age of 13 by somebody who was 19. And they were very violent and sadistic rapes, but she was only 13. You're in that awkward kind of phase of kind of early pubescence, you know, had no self-esteem. He'd be on the one hand telling her he loves her and she's his princess. And on the other hand, then violently raping her. But no, did she walk away immediately as soon as it happened the first time? Of course not, because it's so confusing, isn't it? You know, this person is saying they love me, but they're really doing this really horrible, awful thing to me. And I think especially for girls that age, I think often for anybody at any age, but particularly when you're young, to try and walk away from that is 
incredibly difficult, if not impossible. Yeah, I mean, I read this morning one of the Rochdale cases. I can't actually recall her exact age, but she was very young and she, you know, was believed to have been in a relationship with Mm -hmm. one of the perpetrators. And he would say to her, you know, I'll I'll like you even more if I can share you with my friends. And that's sort of how that was happening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how is like a 12, 13 year old supposed to know that's not what you're supposed to do in a relationship? Mm -hmm. It's how are they supposed to know that? So Mm -hmm. how anyone can think that's a choice, Mm -hmm. I really don't know. Especially, I think, as you're saying, is that, you know, some of our listeners may not think, well, you know, they could look at their parents or their grandparents or whatever. But actually, if you've been brought up either in care or by a single parent household, perhaps, or even a household where your your parents have a dysfunctional relationship, you're not actually going to have experienced what a loving, caring, you know, perfect type mm-hmm. family roles are going to be. So you're very right there, Hannah. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that this really makes me think about as well is kind of what's next for these girls now women and where is the accountability of course yes we have you know this report you know that's great it's taken years for this report well the investigation and then report to be published the mayor has called for disciplinary action to be taken against police officers and council officials who failed in their duties but that's not giving these victims a route to compensation and it makes no, me think not. about the, yeah, the victim's code and that, you know, again, if the victim's code was made not just guidance, <laughs> but actually became law and there was accountability and liability of statutory authorities, that in this situation would make a big difference to these young women and, and other women like them going forward. Because sadly, I don't think this is going to be the last, you know, grooming scandal that we see. No. And I think you're right, Kathleen, calls for accountability, hollow words, I think, Mm -hmm. um, because we see in these scandals, no one is held to account. And it's very difficult for survivors to get accountability, particularly when the law is weighted against them. You know, we have in Parliament at the moment legislation which is designed to give the victims code, which gives victims greater purchase in the criminal justice system, which is great. But there is no sort of accountability if that doesn't happen, it's specifically excluded. Mm -hmm. And I actually met the Home Secretary at Parliament the other day and I pointed that out to him. He said that he didn't know that, whether that's right or not, I don't know, but that's what he said. But I made the point, the legislation as it stands, yeah, greater say in the criminal justice system, fine, but if those rights in the victim's code are not adhered to, very difficult for a victim or survivor to do anything about it because there's no accountability. And we also see it where there isn't still in this country any mandatory reporting. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the people in the Rochdale scandal should have been under a legal obligation to report yeah. what was going on. But I suppose even in that, just thinking that through on the mandatory reporting, which absolutely we need, is that you did have people reporting, even though they weren't required to do so, like Sarah Robotham and Maggie Mm -hmm. Oliver, and nothing was done. And again, this is where this whole idea of kind of there needing to be accountability in these situations. If we have a mandatory reporting law that has no sanction attached for failure to report, then are we really any further forward? I think it's the same, you know, the same picture as you've described on with the victim's code. Well, I think there's a nervousness, isn't there, on the part of politicians where does the buck actually stop the buck does actually stop with the 
you know, the political leaders of these councils and organisations that are are concerned, and I suppose they're nervous of making themselves, um, perhaps I'm being cynical, making themselves uh, accountable for failings if, you know, there still is victim blaming and people Mm. not protecting children properly. Maybe they're nervous of that they will get the get the blame and there'll be consequences. I suspect yeah. the general public would say, well, yeah, well, don't be a politician if you don't want to take <laughs> the responsibility. Well, I think mm. it's simple, though, isn't it? Just, you know, in, in the case of mandatory reporting, just report. I mean, you mm. know, it's quite, you know, I think sometimes people can overcomplicate these things and get mm. really nervous about things that are actually quite straightforward, you know. It's a yeah. simple, straightforward, right thing to do. Well, it's strange, it, and then isn't it? there's because no liability. If you mm. drive down the road and heaven forbid you have an accident, you are meant to report it to the police. If you've gone and injured somebody or run over a, a cow or heaven forbid, you know, you've gone and done that, you've gone and injured a dog, I think that is still the law that you have to report what you've done to the mm. police. So we have mm. laws that are very simple. This is mm. what you do in this particular circumstance. So I don't understand why there's this big sort of hang-up of a mandatory mm. reporting of child abuse. Well, the thing is, as well, is you've got to think about the message that that gives out to the public in general. You, you know, we've always talked about how people are reluctant to come forward to disclose abuse. You, you know, it's an incredibly difficult situation to talk about the worst things in the world that have ever happened to you and then when there's press and you can see that people were reporting but they were ignored it it doesn't encourage people even in this day and age does it to come forward which is the opposite of what we want and what we need to stop perpetrators finding vulnerable people indeed and to wrap up anyone who is really interested in all of this contact your mp and ask them what they're doing about mandatory reporting. And the Victims Code. <laughs> and the Victims Code, yes, too. Yeah, which reminds me, if I don't hear anything from the Home Secretary in the next couple of weeks, I will contact his office to say, right, we met in Parliament the other day. Um, I told you about the lack of accountability in the Victims Code. You didn't know anything about it. So what's happening? Yeah, absolutely. It's just it's just continuing to shine a spotlight on these issues, isn't it, Alan? And, you know, obviously you commenting on them in, in, the, in the news and on, on media to kind of keep bringing people's attention back to this because it's just so easily lost in the shuffle of politics, I suppose, and all the change or potential change that's coming in, in the political system here. Mm. OK, well, on that note, we'll bring this podcast to a close. As always, thank you for listening. If you have any thoughts or comments on this podcast or any of our podcasts, please do get in touch with us. So it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from Danny. It's goodbye from Hannah. And it's goodbye from Kathleen. Bye, Bye, everyone. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.